Friday, everybody. It's Michael Goldman, the host of In the Band podcast. Uh, I'm not sure if I should be saying that at the beginning of all these episodes. I don't know. I don't know who's listening to this. I assume mostly friends. So in case you don't know me and you're tuning in now, that's who I am. Today I have Josh Legg from Goldroom. He is a good friend of mine. I've actually been playing in and out with him for probably four years now. We we could have talked for hours and hours, and I cut it down. And so you know up front, the ending is just really abrupt. We just change subjects and shoot out of there. So look out for that. But we, we end up talking a lot about songwriting process and intentions. And the beginning of the episode's funny because we, we were just talking, and I hit record midway through it. And it was, I thought it was interesting enough to just have it start that way. So we kind of start in the throes of a conversation about, uh, I think, a particular tour. But Josh is a great guy. We've been through a lot together, and so it was really awesome to have him out on the podcast because we stay up late talking on tour in general. And he's been able to make a lot of success for himself with his own writing, his own production, and has a really unique, I guess, like business model of a band. It's, it's not a DJ. It's not a full band. But he rides the line of in between, and he's someone that likes to really think about things before he does them. He analyzes all of it, and I think it shows. And um, hence, we have a great conversation here. So I hope you guys enjoy it and look out for future shows of Gold Room because I will most likely be playing at them. All right. live from Mount Washington in the Northeast LA region of Los Angeles. Yeah, we started recording like halfway through that, that statement. Uh, what what were we talking about? We were talking about you... I was about to say how I um I learned a lot about what it's like about the dynamic if you're working in a band where one person who is a creative member in the band, not a manager or a tour manager or something like that, mm-hmm. but like somebody in the band's the boss. I learned a lot the first big to- set of tours that I did, which was before you joined Goldroom, when I was just touring with Nick and Mariki in 2013 because we didn't have a tour manager. Oh, and yeah. And so I was like, they they were calling me dad during the tour. Well, well, during the tour. Because not only are you also the boss, but you're like also in tr- like you're managing everything too, right? Yeah. And so I don't think I necessarily handled it poorly because I had like I had to be the one to say like, you know, we're leaving the hotel at nine AM or whatever. There was nobody yeah. else to do it. Mm. But what I did also it just made me super conscious of making sure that in the future I might be like somebody to look to for answers, but that I would never play the role of boss like while we were on tour. Because it's hard to be both. (laughs) Yeah. And I think like you can have the most positive group of people in the world. And if you're on tour for a month straight, a lot of negativity is going to come up. And if 
other people in the band have the ability to put those negative vibes on a person, a senior person, um, which I, I think that is just going to happen. Yeah. So if you're the like leader of the band and you put yourself in the position to be the to take that negative energy, it'll be almost impossible for that not to sort of tear the relationship down to some extent. Yeah. So like, I just always tried to put myself in a position where I was like, it was more important to me while we were on tour to be like one of the crew, rather yeah. rather than rather than, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's it's a tough thing to negotiate when things have to get done but also realizing that if you push too hard in certain directions you're going to start compromising everyone's like cohesiveness in the band while traveling and that's going to that's going to then represent itself in the live show and in I, yeah. relationships i think you have to suspend disbelief a little bit too right it, like this is a super common problem tons of bands in 2019 are are run by one person and then the rest of the band is fleshed out with semi-permanent permanent or like straight up like sessiony type yeah. situations right but like you still need to get on stage and play as a team and have a really good relationship through so like there's an element of suspending disbelief like i remember yeah. like if we had any problems during our last bus tour in 2016 with goldroom like even if there were things that could be solved between myself and management or something like that. I think every single time we had any sort of problem, we were sitting down as a band and discussing things together. And not that that, like that those discussions didn't necessarily have to happen, but it was way more healthy to do it that way mm -hmm. rather than just be like, this is the way it's going. And when also having Adam, it's like, but the thing is, Adam never really had to play the bad guy. You're, True, because I, I, I mean, because I think more often than not, when we had issues, um, it's just in case we just start this podcast from this point, basically. Sure. Uh, I'm gonna have to interject with certain information. Um, sure. Because yeah. Adam is the tour manager. He has been the tour manager and front of house engineer for Goldroom for how long now? Like four years, five years? Since 2014. So four. Yeah, this is five the fifth. This will Jeez. be the fifth year. Wow. Um, and the tour we're talking about was a tour that we did, uh, like a bus, a proper bus tour in 20, the fall that, of 20, 2016, fall of 2016, um, Jeez. which was a co-headline tour with this other group called autograph. And like the band we're talking about is gold bus. room, which is me. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll do an intro and then, you know, but, oh. but we can be redundant as well. Um, but it just might be funny to just start this off in the middle of this conversation because I think it's valuable. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember any of the problems that we were having on that tour, we sat down as a band and we figured it out. And Adam never did have to play the bad guy because we always agreed. And in fact, the couple of times where we did need to like interject on like the bus being dirty or like all the normal shit that happens on tour, like we all did that together. And everyone was willing to step up yeah, in no, the same way. No one... Uh, no one made it difficult. But that's like hypothetically, if I had stepped forward and was always the one taking care of everything mm -hmm. and like really like putting myself out there like this is my thing, I think then everybody else would be less willing to like – nobody's going to want to be the one to step up and be like, hey, bro, can you like stay cleaner? You're going to complain to me instead. Yeah. So like – yeah, anyway. I mean I don't know. It's just a – I've always found that balance to be really interesting of how to like maintain a sane working relationship in a very stressful environment. Yeah. Well, you've done a really good job at, uh, just from my personal experience and being in, in Goldrum, 
you've done a really good job at uh, making everyone's input feel really valued. And and just in a, in a way where like even if you're not gonna go with that direction, people feel heard in the band, and then also respect when you're like, okay, we're gonna do it this way. You know what I mean? I'm also always really in my own head. Like <laughs> like, like I'm always like I just need more information. So I, I always like hearing from everyone anyway. But yeah, as I was saying, like I think I also learned that the hard way, which is I when Goldrum started, there was no tour manager with us. So I had to be the bad guy and the dad. And it made for a much more toxic environment. Like yeah. I think Mariki and Nick would agree that, that the tour that we did in 2013 was the most negative and stressful tour that Goldrum's ever done. Uh, and I'm, and I, it was 100% because of that. I had to be the bad guy. So I was the, I was the boss and the dad, and it kind of sucked for me and everyone. Yeah. Because so Goldrum started just as you DJing, yeah. And what when what year did that start? So I was in a band called Night Waves, which was like a sort of a new wave band, a modern new wave band. And with tracks or all live instruments? When we played live, we had we had tracks because there were so many synthesizers that we had that we had to have tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we started out actually as a two piece, just my friend Kyle and I, and we would like get on stage with synthesizers, kind of play along to the tracks and, and then sing on top. Like it was pretty messy and weird, but it was like, this was 2008 and nobody was, it felt pretty new and tracks were pretty new. We just had no idea what we were even trying to do. Um, we just knew that people were interested in hearing us play the music and we had absolutely no idea how to reproduce it. Yeah. <laughs> so we were trying to figure it, figure it out and we toured around a little bit and then we started to write a full length and I wrote a bunch of demos for that full length that the other guys in the band, um, just weren't really into. It was a little bit more dance oriented. I had never really, uh, DJed before, but because we were making electronic music, which I always come from like a singer songwriter, background and so I wasn't really familiar with the electronic scene at all except that I was getting into those sounds and incorporating them in, into the music we were making so we started to get asked to DJ and so I would DJ and I started to find that I really liked it and mm-hmm. because I was DJing I started to find dance music that I really liked so that wormed its way into my writing and all these songs that I had written for the Nightwaves full length the guys didn't like and so I ended up spinning those songs into a side project. So Goldrum became my side project. My only goal with it was to like have a name for myself so that I could DJ at nights around LA and have a good time. Yeah. Um, but then I released the first EP in late 2011. And um, within like three or four months, uh, promoters from like Canada and the East Coast were hitting me up to fly me to come DJ, which was something I I didn't expect and was just such a weird trip to me. Were you just floored by like the attention? Yeah. I mean, like I, just because you didn't have necessarily the, that ambition. For I it. had no idea what the barrier to entry was to get into the world where promoters would fly you to a city to go DJ at a club one night. And so the barrier to entry was just a lot lower than I thought it would be. So it was like the most incredible thing ever to like get to fly to Toronto to play at a club one night and then fly home. And that was my weekend. And I I got to actually keep money at the end of all yeah, that. Yeah, actually get paid. Yeah. I can't remember. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Even in the rock world, it's not a thing. Right. Well, first <laughs> of all, because one person can't fly to yeah. do that. And then second of all, in the club world, you know, the concept of, of – 
of people just coming to the club and trusting the promoter with whoever's DJing that night is true. It's a, nobody like nobody nobody like walks to the troubadour and is like, I'm just gonna. This is where I go. Yeah, John puts so on these I'm, rock nights, and I'm gonna go check it or out. Or not even yeah. that. It, like it's just like, oh, it's it's a it's a place where I can go. So I'm gonna go there on Wednesday and just sit. Maybe there is, but it's the, like, the it's, only thing that exists like that in LA. I think is the residency. Exactly. And it's and it's more like oh, I, like the Echo usually has good Monday night residencies. I'll just see who's playing, you know. And so it's what I found was, and I'm not a club kid. I've never been a club kid, but what I found was that the club culture really um, supports up-and-coming artists in a way that the rock world doesn't because if you cross a, th- a certain threshold of... It seems like the, like the reverse effect. Like, in the rock world, it's like, yeah, no one really knows of this rock band. It's like, well, then I don't care. But in the dance world, it's it's like seems more exciting. Yeah, I think that that's true. I disagree with you a little bit about the rock band thing because I think once, in both cases, if artists crack over a certain barrier, all of a sudden everyone in the industry is really interested. And that's totally. the barrier where like the festivals want to book you even though you can't draw any any tickets, right? Yeah. You see all the time like new bands show up and it's like, can they even sell 200 tickets in LA? I don't know, but then they're on Lollapalooza yeah. and Gov Ball and like they play all these amazing festivals. So that's an interesting spot. I guess there's more of a trust in the dance community that you're going to deliver fun no matter what maybe versus like I don't know, I think definitely and 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 face it, a DJ is playing other people's music. Yeah. A shitty rock band sounds shitty to everyone. Yeah. A shitty <laughs> DJ is at least playing music that is like produced it's like, well it's, and it's will approved work in a club. at some level. Yeah, it might it might be like a different um genre that people want or something like that the taste might not totally be there but they're playing songs that are going to be working in the club mm-hmm. so i don't know it, it i found that to be really interesting and so goldrum to to really long-windedly answer your question for the first year of goldrum even though my music has a lot of live instrumentation i just dj'd uh for about a year and a half and then in 2013 um finally started to play shows like we went to south by southwest and played shows and when you uh, say we that's when you added nick yeah so nick came on as a drummer and mariki was the first singer uh for goldrum so we toured as a three-piece with no tour manager and i mean even at that point in 2013 we were like we went to the dominican to play a couple shows and we flew to colombia to play in bogota i know i'm so jealous that i wasn't in the band yet um so like even then plenty of things were kind of happening and I was releasing music independently at the time. And then you joined the band a year later and we toured a bunch more and it's kind of been pretty sort of consistent since then. Yeah. But that half that, DJ half live. Yeah. And maybe cause well, you, I, I would say you do probably more DJ than live. Definitely now. I mean, since, since my accident, it, that definitely has shifted more to like 90% DJing. 10% live. Do you want to mention you what that accident was since it, since it was sure. just <laughs> you were there. Uh, well, I can we can edit this out no, or uh, if you don't want to talk about it. No, we should talk about it. I mean, uh, cuz like, I was just there. And you were also <laughs> very much present at the time that everything happened. I you know, this was the summer of 2017 and we were booked to play a festival on the beach in Tulum. We were there a day early. And we were 
gallivanting on like the perfect day in the water. It was amazing. Yeah, the weather was perfect. Like half of the band's girlfriends were there. We had like eight people and everybody was having a wonderful day in the water. And I saw Nick and his girlfriend like on the beach and I wanted to go meet them. I was like swimming in and I saw a little wave. So I decided to like ride the wave in and it flipped me over and I did a somersault in the water and the top of my head hit the sand. And unbeknownst to me at the moment, I broke my neck. (laughs) (laughs) So I got up and, well, I mean, I was pretty messed up at the moment, obviously. But you were able to actually, you were laying on the sand and I saw you laying on the sand and I just thought you were peacefully enjoying the water. If we get into it, I mean, so like I felt a jolt of electricity go through my body I immediately was worried that I had injured, that I broke, that I had hurt myself really badly. So I rolled to get out of the water so I wouldn't drown. And I was kind of like at the edge of the water where you saw me. Yeah. I hadn't walked at all. I was just kind of like laying there. And I noticed that my left arm was completely numb and dead. And I thought maybe I had like broken my arm or dislocated my shoulder or something like that. You know, when you're waiting for the pain to start? Yeah. Meanwhile, I just thought you looked awesome, just chilling, <laughs> chilling on the sand. So then uh, I realized I was pretty hurt, and I saw a day. I, I saw a day bed, so I, I was I was able to get up, and I walked to the day bed, and lay down, and then I was not able to sit up for another week. Yeah, yeah, that was the surprising thing is you were able to make it to that bed, but I think you were probably operating on crazy amounts of adrenaline. Yeah, there was no, in. there wasn't much pain going on at that po- at that point. Yeah. Um, and if I, if I hadn't, if we had all known what the situation was at the beginning, I wouldn't have kept drinking throughout the rest of the day. (laughs) I think we would have handled it differently. I mean, my, I, you know, I, I played high school sports or whatever, and I thought that I had just gotten like a stinger or like, you know, like I knocked my neck in a weird way and I was having like nerve pain. And so I figured it was going to slowly get better and that I'd go to the hotel and sleep it off so we could play the show the next day yeah but it just never got better and so you stuck around everybody else took off or no maybe you took off at some point and then came back yeah well adam told us after like an hour and a half of ch- we decided to hang out a little bit longer to see how you were doing and then adam was like well, i'm gonna wait here with him you guys can go back to the hotel room it's like gonna get dark soon and we went back and then i think we drank more at the hotel and then he was like can you bring josh's stuff down to the beach and i was like oh shit and then i met i met the ambulance down there and pointed you out to them. And then I had another drink at the bar there while I was waiting to see what was going on. And then Cuz you didn't know you were going to have to carry yeah, me. Yeah, and then 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 Adam was like, "Can you we need a fourth person to help lift uh, him up?" I was <laughs> I was not immobilized. There was nothing around my neck and I was on a wooden board. <laughs> yeah, it's like a little makeshift uh, uh, stretcher. And you guys carried me like a quarter mile from the beach through the jungle. Yeah, this little pathway. Up stairs and through a path to the I mean if I had been dropped or jostled in the wrong way like it could have just been looking back on it yeah how fragile you probably were in that it's, actual it's state. insane to think about how sketchy all of that was but I I mean to it is a long story so to make a long story short I ended up at a hospital in Cancun found out that I had broken my neck and lived there for a week and then flew home to Los Angeles and got admitted to Kaiser here in LA, lived in a hospital for another week and a half here, and then finally got to go home. I didn't I didn't walk for about a week and 
and then it took weeks and weeks of living on my couch at home before I was before I could do more than just walk to the bathroom. Oh yeah, uh, that's when I brought over some uh, edibles for you. Yeah, which was a giant lifesaver. <laughs> I think like when I think back of that period of my life and like the music that I made in the following six months or so, it's super hazy to me, and it's partially because you know of all the they prescribe me like gnarly amounts of, you know, oxy and then tramadol. And so I was doing my best to be like, well, they're telling me I'm going to have to take opiates every day for six months. Like <laughs> this is not a good call. Yeah. That's I scary. do not want to get into that world. So. Oh yeah. You were trying to just do like edibles and CBD and stuff to not do so much painkillers. I backed it way off and like I started to do, I started to eat edibles. Yeah. As a way to, um, as a way to like supplement. And I think, to- I mean, I don't know if it saved my life, but I like to think it did. Like it was a huge, huge benefit in me moving forward. But I look back at all that time and it's like pretty hazy. I think a lot of the music I wrote sounds like that. It sounds like being confused about almost dying and, uh, and, and being on, and I was touring, which is the other thing. So I was like, also like, even though I wasn't physically healthy, I was doing a boat tour and I was like drinking and well, partying. We did like outside lands pretty soon after that. And that was the, you, you had to wear your neck brace all of the day and you took it off just for the show and then put it right back on. Yeah. And I think you were saying like, yeah, it's actually good. I'm supposed to have like an hour out of the day without the neck brace on. Yeah. But like, <laughs> maybe it shouldn't have been that hour, but Yeah, I still wanted it to be. Uh, like I remember there was like a fan in the audience that had made like a, a, you know, like an eight by eight poster with the picture of me in the hospital bed on it. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I mean that whole period was just weird cause I was touring and I was still kind of like drinking and partying with people, but I was also like on opiates and taking, you know, edibles to like try and cope with this pain <laughs> and. It took a really long time. This is a very hazy, confused yeah. period of my life, really. I will say, and then we can kind of move off of the, the broken neck portion of, the, <laughs> of this conversation. It's but. such a big, I mean, like, conf- it is, <laughs> it's been the story of the last, like, two years of my life, though. You know, yeah. it's hard to. It's a massive, it's a big, impactful thing. Yeah. But uh, the way that you handled yourself in all of it was so badass to me and like the like we were carrying off the beach and you were just joking like the whole time very just like okay yeah no i think i'm kind of it's kind of like excruciating pain um i don't think i can lift my head up right now god do you think you're gonna be carrying me up like in a stretcher tonight your attitude throughout the whole thing was, it was uh, so really admirable though because a lot so of people surreal. freak out and get get like you were very self-aware in a pretty good way i don't know i i i wish that i will be eventually when some shit hits the fan for me Thank in, you. in the same no kind i mean of i appreciate state. you saying that i like i like to think of myself as being able to handle situations like that well i certainly just remember in the moment being like i need everybody else to to not freak out and i know that if i freak out that will be the thing that will freak everyone else out yeah i also didn't think there was any way i broke my neck i did not realize how not that it's easy to break your neck but like I figured if I had broken my yeah, neck, like you don't I hear about it that way. <laughs> I would have been like way more hectically messed up. And plus, there a doctor came to the beach to check me out. Yeah, and he told me that I had 
muscle problems and nerve problems and that if I rested, I'd be okay. Yeah, I have a video of you getting that shot in your ass. I got a shot in my ass at that point. (laughs) Some muscle relaxant and some painkiller, which didn't do anything because obviously I had a broken neck. Yeah. (laughs) I, I just, then I finally got to the first hospital and they did the CT scan and realized that I had broken two vertebrae in my neck. And I just remember Adam being like, Sorry, bro. <laughs> well, he texted us and I texted him back saying like, so are we playing the show tomorrow? <laughs> and I also remember us <laughs> laughing about you saying that. Yeah. And Adam was like, no. Yeah. Like, are you, he's, I forget what he said, but something like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, no, we're not playing <laughs> the show tomorrow. I didn't. I mean, it's, it's still crazy to me that I walked to the day bed because I, I didn't sit up for for like three days, three or four days. I could not sit. I couldn't even sit. The only, the only reason I walked for the first time was cause I, um, like, th- like three or four days later, I still, I still hadn't, um, pooped at all. And I like, <laughs> I needed to take a shit and I didn't, well, you were on all these painkillers, right? So there's, yeah. And I, I really felt bad for the nurse cause I had asked him to bring me a bedpan so I could use the bathroom and I had like sat up and I knew it was like, okay for me to walk if I could. Mm-hmm. And then I was just like, I got to do this. So yeah, sometimes the simplest like needs are the strongest ones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I walked to the toilet and that was the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thinking back on that, we really did play some shows pretty close to that incident. Actually, I knew that I didn't want, there were certain shows that I didn't want to miss and I, I had booked Fuji Rock as a DJ and that was the first show that I was like always asking my doctors, can I, and that was only like 15 or 16 weeks after the injury. I was going to say that was like like October and it happened in June. Right. And so I was, um, I was like, you know, if I wear my neck brace, can I go to, can I go to Japan? I I really want to play the show. (laughs) And they cleared me to do it. I wore my neck brace the entire time. So I like was DJing festivals in a cervical neck collar. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then we got back and I really wanted to do that live stuff. And I remember like putting the guitar on the first rehearsal we played. I remember being really sore afterward, like just holding a, you know, a strat on my shoulder for an hour was tough. But I remember outside lands going, being like one of the more memorable shows we've ever played. Cause it was like, through the it was like misting and the fog was heavy and we had a yeah. great crowd and it, that was an insane weekend to begin with just like i miss i miss playing live a lot and it just hasn't made sense because i haven't we haven't put out enough original material you know um but i do these these boat tours every summer so that's the kind of thing that i can do regardless of whether or not stuff's coming out going back a little bit you your first instrument was cello like me, right? We must have talked about that before, but you saying that right now made me be like, what? Because, <laughs> yeah, cello was my first instrument. You know, it, it was a classic, like, all of the, you know, the whoever rents all the instruments, you know, goes around to the elementary schools and uh, shows everybody, you know, has a player to play each instrument. Yeah. And it's like, come rent this and you can, you know, start learning the Suzuki method. So I started playing, I think, when I was eight. Same with me. Or seven or eight. And then I, I played for six or seven years. And somewhere in the middle of that, like, I bought Nirvana Nevermind and, like, Offspring Smash and a Pearl Jam record. 
and like an like a '90s era Aerosmith record, and like just got super into rock music, and that became my thing. So I was I just really wanted a guitar so bad. Yeah. So my parents finally bought me a guitar, and as soon as that happened, it was game over. Because I was always I was already like writing music on the cello. Like I would always come to my cello practices with like, look at what I did. And my teacher would be like, can you practice the thing that I told you to practice, <laughs> do, please? Do what we told you to so do. So as soon as I had a guitar and I learned how to play like a power chord, it was kind of game over. Yeah. I had the classic like School of Rock movie in fifth grade. This music teacher was like, well, you play cello so you could play bass. And, oh. and handed me a bass. And then I just never played cello again. <laughs> Because my mom had told me, she sold me on the idea that girls liked guys who played cello. And in the two years of playing it, I mean, in elementary school, no girls seemed to think that was cool at all. I think, <laughs> I think like women in their like 30 and up find it attractive when a man plays the cello well. I wish that I had kept a cursory ability to play the to cello play? the entire time. Yeah, it would have been cool to keep it up. My friend Al, uh, Allison Wonderland is a DJ plays the cello and plays it when she does her live show she plays it mm. in the middle of her she plays like aggressive you know a re, sort of arena sized edm and but she like she's a good cello player cellos are beautiful i wish that i that there was one in my living space all the time yeah the thing is when i've tried to play it um cellos are beautiful when someone knows how to play it but like all uh, classic stringed instruments. They're also awful when someone doesn't know how to play it. Yeah, I mean, I remember it taking like half a year of playing just to get a good sound out of it. I mean, mm -hmm. granted, when you're in third grade or something like that, but like holding the bow correctly and making a nice noise come out of the cello is not the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. I think those classical stringed in instruments are like scotch and then like guitars and stuff like that or like whiskey where like a shitty whiskey is still fine, but a <laughs> shitty scotch is so fucking bad. I'd, I'd take a shitty whiskey any that's, day. That's funny. Um, so what's the fireball of guitars then? Oh, that <laughs> the fireball whiskey of guitars? I don't know. That's a really good question. An Epiphone Les Paul? Yeah, I, my first thing was like, the, like an Ibanez hair metal kind of like model or something like that. <laughs> My first guitar was a Squire Strat that probably cost like $90 or something like that, maybe less. And, you know, the like cheapest, the cheapest little PV solid state amp or whatever. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, it like changed, it like took me from cello so fast. I was just over it. My mom was so distraught. <laughs> to see you go to the dark side, essentially. Yeah, she just loved me playing cello. Huh. Um, but then uh, you could start, I don't know, you could write songs like right away. Well, you turned it into your career, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Not on purpose, but yeah. Um, and so you transitioned to guitar and did you play in bands throughout high school? No, cause, uh, I was never a good enough player. So I was always just writing songs on my own and I thought that they sucked. So I was always just doing it for myself, mm -hmm. mostly just because I thought that I wasn't good. When did you write a song that you thought, maybe this is good, maybe it's worth showing someone? Not until Gold Room? Yeah, so wait, so... And I mean, that's not really true. Like, I wrote lots and lots of songs, and I never... Uh, 
Okay, so actually, I do have an answer for this. First of all, I was doing this, and my cousin gave me a, a Tascam 4-track when I was like 13. And so I started to record the songs that I was writing. And um, that was amazing, because I was starting to learn the skills of how to produce. And that's kind of my main job now as a producer. And so I was doing that, but I was doing it on my own. When I was around 16... A guy that I was working with uh, at the summer camp that I was teaching at, um, he played bass. And so he and another guy from the camp were like jamming, mm -hmm. um, but the other guy wasn't very good. And so like I hopped on guitar and we started to jam. And like it was the first time I'd ever played music with somebody else in that kind of setting. And it was just pretty electric and felt incredible. And so we kept, uh, this was always based around getting really drunk. <laughs> and high so we would like get really drunk and then jam at night and then at some point that summer i was like as the sort of he would play bass so that's mm -hmm. all we were, it wasn't two guitars it was like he was just kind of following along with my chord progressions or whatever yeah and uh, at some point that summer i was like i was starting to play the chord progressions of songs that i had written and i was like here i'm gonna like i just had the balls to like sing one night mm -hmm. and that was kind of the first time that i ever was willing to show somebody a song that I had written, but we never even, we played like a couple open mics and that was it. Yeah. Never had any aspirations or thoughts of that moving forward at all. So I kept just writing songs on my own and recording them on my own. It wasn't until I was in that band night waves after I'd moved to LA that stuff that I was involved in writing sort of went out into the public with a goal of people who I didn't know hearing it. Yeah. That was a lot longer, though. I wrote hundreds and hundreds of songs for years, not showing anybody except for, like, my girlfriend at the time or whatever. <laughs> yeah. What, did you write a lot of songs about your girlfriend? Yeah. That's all I knew what, what to write about in high school, was, like, writing about my dad and writing about my girlfriend. And that's the only... I was like, what else is there <laughs> I got, to, to, to think about? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure this is true for a lot of people who are learning an instrument and trying to figure out how to write, but it would be like, I'd learn a new chord on the guitar and I'd be like, that's beautiful. And then I'd write a whole song just because of that chord. And then I'd try and, you know, find new words and melodies. I mean, I've always been like a... Um, a singing gibberish with melody and then figure mm. the words out later kind of guy. I'm the same way. With uh, but there came a time around college where I just got really into folk music and Bob Dylan became like my God for a while. And so I became really interested in writing and trying really hard to write about anything other than love. Mm. Um, and you know, at the time it was like folk. And then I was also getting into like Ryan Adams. So I was, it was like sort of the country, alt country, folk, Americana, you know, all of that kind of vibe. And so a lot of what I was writing was trying to like tell stories and do this and that. But I've always been so influenced by like a person on a stage with an acoustic guitar. And so much of that time, that music tends to be like, especially if you grew up around the same time that we did, most of that is our love songs. It's yeah. hard not to write about that kind of stuff. Well, it's like, it's the easy fallback everyone can relate <laughs> to that, you know? Totally. Yeah, I mean, it, how how can it not be? Like, I, I, my, I feel like my whole life in some way or another has always revolved around, uh, you know, interpersonal relations, you know, uh, 
business and longing and and personal and love and all of it comes back to relationships with people you know imagined or otherwise <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean sometimes sometimes you need a good amount of heartbreak too it's the best inspiration well and also a lot of songs that people think are about heartbreak or are about love aren't um but if you're telling a story that's about interpersonal relations, like I said, like it might be something that's about your your manager or your friend or your parents or yeah. whatever. And because of the way, you know, if the emotions are strong, which like why would you write about something if they weren't? Nine times out of ten, if you listen to the song, uh, like the average listener can turn that into a love song. That's why I love like somebody like Tom Petty's writing. Like I don't think he necessarily wrote every song wasn't necessarily a love song. In fact, you know, reading about it, it's definitely not. Mm -hmm. But when I would listen to his stuff, it whatever, whatever weird, you know, entanglement I was in would always, I would always feel like he was speaking to me because he wrote stuff that was specific and yet general. Yeah. If there's certain, um, there's certain ideas in the song that can be attributed to love. Like, if there's a missing or there's a longing or, you know, or there's kind of like a pain in there, those are so easy to just throw like, oh, like, yeah, that's how I felt. I felt that way when I was uh, missed my girlfriend or whatever. hundred percent. I, I mean, it always works that way for me because I sing gibberish. And then I realize that the gibberish is about something. And then I try and like flesh it out. And it always ends up veering into that direction. And people, even if I don't think a song is necessarily a love song, uh, people, the people who hear it always tend to think that it is. Yeah. My, Which I'm fine with. Um, well, I mean, yeah, everyone's going to take their own ownership of what you put out there. And, totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> my, my friend Drew sent me, his record's not out yet, but it's a really cool record, but he has a song called A Day on Tour. And like for like the first 60% of it, he's just kind of describing, it's kind of droney, he's kind of describing like, like little things about like being in a hotel room or whatever. And then finally at the end of one like thing that he's saying, it ends with like, and I hope that today's the day that you call me. And then it moves on and you're like, oh my God. So this is a love song. I, you didn't know it was until he drops that. And then it all of a sudden casts the context over everything you just heard. And you, and I love that moment in that song, but like that, we don't have to talk about Drew anymore, but that was really cool. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I love, yeah, I always love turns of phrase like that. And it always ends up, I feel like I find myself writing that way all the time. Yeah. How old were you? You started Night Waves when you were in college, right? Yeah. Or like, yeah, I guess sort of right at the end of college. Um, and we were a two piece and then a three piece and we were playing with a drummer for a while as well. And then, and then, yeah, things sort of fizzled at the same time that, um, that Goldroom started. So at, at first I figured that Night Waves was my priority and Goldroom was my side thing. Mm -hmm. And then like very quickly Goldroom became my full-time job. Uh, how, how quickly was it that you started, like Goldroom was created and then how soon was it that it was basically taking over and bigger than Night Waves? 12, oh, three months. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty quickly. Yeah, like maybe a month, like I put the stuff out and a month later it was, it was just doing better than, yeah, it was more like night waves was never, I mean, we, we, we 
played shows around the country a little bit. Like we went to Miami and played a show and we went to South by a couple of times, mm -hmm. but it's not like we could ever tour and a, a promoter from across the country definitely never like hit us up. Yeah. So you pretty know. instantly it was like, well, this is working. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then you just exited night waves. Um, we were still trying to finish the album and I guess six years later, we're, we're six, nine years later, sort of, we're still trying to finish the <laughs> album. And I, we wrote some amazing music that's still some of my favorite stuff that we've ever written. And I, uh, I'm, I'm still kind of hopeful that we're going to finish it, even if it's not like a, with a goal of, you know, having it be commercially successful and yeah. touring or anything. I just love the music. That's cool. So is there any plan for release for that? Uh, it needs to get finished. Yeah. Uh, but the goal is that we will do that. We've actually sort of reopened that chapter in the last year or so, which is exciting. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the stuff, it's funny to me because we were making music that is having a bit of a moment right now. Hmm. Like there's a really vibrant scene for 80s inspired um, electronic pop mm -hmm. right now. And there really wasn't 10 years ago. And we were actually some of the people that were pushing that scene forward at the time. And so the fact that there's a bit more of an audience for it right now is exciting. Yeah, and just we could be just a better time for you guys. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe, I don't know if nobody hears it, I don't care either. <laughs> you know, I, I just love the music. I'd love to get it out there. And if some people find it, then that would be, then that'd be great. I'm, I, those guys are some of my best friends in the world. So I just would be excited to be making music with them again. Yeah. I, I'm just curious about your relationship with touring because it really would have started with Goldrum. Oh, 100%. I've only ever known touring through the lens of Goldrum, and I learned it first as a DJ, as we were talking about before. So like traveling alone without a tour manager and flying from gig to gig and then learning how to drive around in a van and play shows. It also wasn't like we were playing small shows either. Like we played... Brooklyn Bowl on that tour for a thousand people and you know we sold out the Troubadour at the end of that tour um, and yet we were playing as a three piece in in rental in rental minivans yeah uh, so that was a very interesting time like me having to tour manage that tour you know was interesting and so when you added Adam, was it the first tour manager? Yeah. Yeah. He was the first tour manager and now only tour manager that yeah. I've ever worked with. And so I joined like right around when Adam joined. Yeah. And um, so I guess I don't really know the group before that, but was that like a, did that feel like a massive change to have him Yeah, there? it was amazing. Like, yeah, I can't imagine. My manager at the time really wanted me to hire a tour manager and I was kind of like, I'm not doing tours that lose money or break even. Mm -hmm. Like I have no desire to do that, which I don't know if that's a positive way to look at it or not, but Goldroom's never done a tour that has lost money. And I, I have... mean, that's an awesome thing to be able to say <laughs> that, I mean, there's, that's, that's more than a rarity. Yeah. I just never wanted to do that. And at the time, you know, I think the only reason people would accept that is when they're viewing it obviously as an investment. Yeah, the other thing is we've never been invited to do a support tour before. Yeah. So that opportunity has never presented itself, which I think is probably the most common way that people tour around and lose money. Mm -hmm. uh, but I never I never wanted to. So it was an incredible luxury to have Adam come on to do front of house 
And, um, I mean, that's another reason why touring without, without Adam was so stressful because every night we were battling with sound with, 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 a uh, local venue sound guys. Yeah. And that would be my job to be like having to explain the, like we use backing tracks and this is how they need to be used. Yeah. And it's easily eliminating the most stressful part of your day. <laughs> yeah. Before. And so that was always really tough. Cause obviously also we weren't using like in-ear monitors and we were playing small venues. And so it was always tough for Mariki to hear her voice properly and for, um, for all of us to play together. And then, you know, we all, it was just a lot. So it was, I'm glad we did it because it made me appreciate having a tour manager in front of house so much. Um, luckily Goldrum was going well enough that adding you and adding, um, adding Adam to do front of house and, and tour management was, was feasible. Yeah. Cause that was a, we, that was a really cool year. You know, I remember like playing Firefly and being like, Oh man, it was like sort of the first, it was, I think the first festival that we ever played as a group. We played lightning in a bottle with Mariki, but I think that Firefly was the first time where I was like, oh, we're a band in the music business and like, this is like a thing. Wasn't it light, lightning in a bottle is like just an EDM kind of festival, right? Yeah. Bands, bands play there. I mean, there's certainly like bands play there. It's, it's definitely more, more electronic, uh, focused, but, well, but they're, I just feel, I feel like there's a difference between those festivals that are more like geared for a specific scene, and then there's festivals that like encompass every scene. Yeah, like I the mean, major ones. Yeah, it's a good thing. To, it's an interesting thing to talk about because I think one of the reasons why Goldrum's never been invited to support anyone is because Goldrum's always been a very weird tweener thing. Yeah, we're like too live to support a big DJ or something like that, or a big electronic act. But to to but, DJ, <laughs> but we're way too electronic to support an know, actual live band. Yeah, exactly. Like it would always be my dream to like support, uh, you know, Phoenix or Mike Snow or Empire of the Sun or something like that. And I think in some ways, yeah, those are some of the few bands that yeah, seems there's like only in the wheelhouse. Yeah, there's only sort of a few. And I think even with those situations, like I think some of them might look at us and be like, oh, they're a little like too EDM, which is funny because I, I, I don't think. We, I, th I think it'd be hard to be further. I feel very far away from that scene. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet we've also been like invited to play live at ultra. So yeah. it's, it's very, it's, it's weird. Cause we were like indie enough to play FYF and, you know, dance enough to play at ultra. So it's weird treading that line. Um, and it's made for, I can't remember what you were starting to say, but it's been weird, like keeping a foot in both of those worlds, which yeah. I've sort of continued to do all the way until now. How do you like having a studio outside of your home? Love it. I, w I have a garage here that I could turn into a studio and that was the goal. But the further along I've gone, the more I've realized that I need to leave my house. Yeah. And so going somewhere to work allows you to be more productive, much more. I Just always being think in a different headspace, you know? Yeah, because working from home sometimes can be difficult because all the things at my fingertips, you know, like, like, oh, well, maybe I'll just run down to the post office and check my mail or like, you know, my, oh, my roommate just got home. I'm going to see what he's up to or just all the little things. Totally. 
And you spend, you're also used to spending your leisure time there too. So it sort of feels like you can do that. Yeah. Whereas I'm never just chilling in my studio ever. So when I go there, it doesn't occur to me to chill. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. And it's, if I'm at home trying to work on a track and someone's like, hey, meet me in Hermosillo, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll see you there in five minutes. Right. Totally. Whereas if I was like at a location, it might feel easier to I be mean, like, I'm I mean, what you're describing is also something. kind of the most interesting thing about music, right? Which is that for people who are active in the music business, you know, anybody who loves music and who writes music can identify with the idea of being super inspired and writing a song or recording a song when you're super inspired. Mm-hmm. And that is what we all fell in love with originally when we were eight or 18 or whatever, when we first started to get into it. The crazy moment becomes when it becomes a career. And if you really want to make it a career, you need to be able to wake up and turn that switch on every day. Yeah. And that's something that some people flat out refuse to do. And other people try to do and trying to do that trying to turn songwriting or music, you know, making into kind of a day job, like that ruins people and some other people in music too. Yeah. So it's a pretty weird balance to try and find. And for me, that's just about like trying to find the way to make that magic happen and not have it ruin, ruin me on a yeah. daily basis. But there's so many people that see a little bit of success because they they write they take you know two years or five years of their whole life to write the first record yeah and then it's like okay time to get to work and they're like well I write a song once a month and it's like you can't yeah, yeah it's it like, might, well it might not know, work yeah yeah album two can't wait five years so right um, I but guess. I've always found that interesting because it's it's easy to be inspired sometimes mm-hmm. it's really hard to say. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to be inspired enough to make something, to make something great. Do, do you, do you find it easy to hold a carrot on the stick in front of yourself without, you know? No, the whole key, it well, it depends what you mean by the carrot, right? Cause I think one thing that's really hard to get caught up in once you're touring or doing anything like that is the carrot being, will people like this? Will a record label like this? Or mm. will my fans like this? Or will you know, a dude at Spotify playlist this or something like Mm -hmm. that. And I think almost everyone would agree that operating from that perspective is super unhealthy and will never result in good art. If the carrot is like true inspiration. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm, I've gotten quite good at that. And in my mind there, it's like, if I'm in a studio and I'm starting to think like, I'll, I don't care if the song that I'm making is incredibly weird and will never, will never work for anything. I just have really made it my motto to like listen to the song. Yeah. And if the song if the song is great and doesn't work for Goldroom or doesn't work for anybody, that's okay. Um the goal of every day is to take whatever the direction of the song that I'm starting and like see that through and then figure the rest out later. But as soon as I start thinking about anything else and I get in my head it's like it's over. And I can't, I can't move forward. Yeah. Do you, do, have you seen a big change in terms of like the, I mean, I guess it's been an interesting journey for you because it's become more of a thing for you to need to stay on top of as you've gotten more popular, obviously. But like before, before Gold Room, how much were you pushing yourself to like be creative and write songs? 
Before Gold Room. Um, like before before that, like promoter in Toronto hit you up about coming out there. Like how big of a difference was your songwriting regiment before that versus after that? I was that? always pushing myself more. The the issue actually is once I once I was like, okay, I'm going to release music out into the world, my standards for the vibe and the production of the song went up so much yeah. that all of a sudden a lot of my time was spent on making the production sound great. And so, well, I mean, of course, you're going to write slightly differently because you're like, oh, shit, people are going to listen to this now. Yeah, whereas, you know, there was a long period in my life where I was just, I was really driven to try and work on songwriting. I would, def- I would write a song a day. And because, you know, if it's just you and guitar and you're writing demos that way, that becomes much easier. And so as I've gone along, I always go through these periods where I'm like, i got to focus on that more. So I'll wake up and I'll have like... Some people journal, some people work out or whatever. Like I'll get up and go to the studio and, and write a song on guitar, which like one of those songs every two years might turn into a Gold Room song. Yeah. Um, but it's more about exercising that muscle and trying to push everything forward. So yeah, I don't know. You're just getting better at like, songwriting. I'm, I'm much less prolific than I used to be, but my batting average is higher. Totally. Um so funny to me the difference in people's writing because like they're i've played in certain bands where it was like no song ever got finished unless it was basically gonna be on the album i'm getting like, closer and closer to that kind of average now yeah although i'm you know i have a in my itunes i have like all my i'm pretty organized about how i keep my demos and pretty consistently from 2012 to 2019 i have like the same number of demos pop up every year. It's always somewhere between like 20 and 40. Mm-hmm. And so every year I've got 20 to 40. And, and a demo is like instrumental and vocals of, of some amount. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a demo without vocals, right? Is that the, like we should... <laughs> I have some, Goldrum has a couple instrumental songs, but yeah, for the most part, no. Yeah. But I, wouldn't, I don't think of those as demos. For some reason, it's like... I've just never thought about this. Unless it was it a like very a, complex arrangement, I might call it. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Not, I don't know. It's a demonstration. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that demo means demonstration, but I it yeah, would I never, never say that. that. Like, would you like to listen to a demonstration of my skills? That is so interesting. Yeah, I've never thought about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's very interesting moving forward. I find that I think about things from a big picture perspective more and more, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, I'd really love to write something like this. I've never really done this before. Let's give that a try. Whereas before it was very much just like, I'm, I'm so inspired to do this and off I go or something like that. Not that it's calculated at all because I'm also not good enough to ever accomplish the thing that I set out to try and do. (laughs) So I'll be in the room and I'll be like, wow, it'd be cool to like, I'd like to try and do this. And then it always ends up taking a left turn the key is not trying to force it back towards the original idea, but accepting yeah. the left-hand turn and following it down that path. And just being, just corralling the ideas into a finished product. Yeah, or, and like understanding or ha- being free enough to let the song drive the direction that it's going. Yeah. Yeah. Like on West of the West, uh, you know, my plan was to write this much more sort of band-oriented uh more classic songs like i had done you know some dance tracks that just had repeated lyrics over and over again Mm -hmm. 
like a classic house song or something like that, but you know, in the Goldroom style or whatever. And with West of the West, it was like, no, this is all going to be much more songwriting like I grew up with. And that was this whole goal. And, and the lead song on the record, Silhouette, was a song that uh, we knew we had a hook for and we had a little bit of a verse for, but we didn't, we were thinking the guy who I wrote it with, Ryland, we wanted to, f- we thought we wanted to flesh it out and turn it into a, more of a song. Mm-hmm. And then as we started to talk to people and we're playing them this demo, everyone was like, actually, you know that hook you wrote? You should just strip that. And it should just be the one first line f- that you guys wrote. And it was just one line without you on the silhouette. Yeah. And everyone was like, this should be a viber. This actually is. should be a dance track. <laughs> and so we pulled it back to that and followed sort of the path that it wanted to be rather than yeah, rather than what it. I was hoping yeah. it would be. And that song ends up being the most successful song on the record. Yeah, that's my favorite song on the record too. So it's like you gotta you gotta follow what is right for the song. What's been a the scariest moment for you as a songwriter? Yeah, like in the moment or like we're about to release it could be anything is what you mean, really, right? Kind of, but I, I mean more like, like what's, what's felt the most vulnerable to you? <sighs> I don't know. There's some stuff on the, that, we're about, that we're about to release on the new, the new record that, that uh, I'm scared of just because it's, it's, a, it's a departure from the full length. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's darker in a lot of ways than a lot of the music Goldrum's always been known as being this sort of bright daytime um party music and you know nostalgia for happier times of your youth and uh because I came off of the neck injury and a lot of the music that followed that is a little bit darker and a little bit more psychedelic and a little bit more left of center and so I'm I'm feeling especially also the time that it's been since we released new new music, mm-hmm. it's pretty scary to think about putting new stuff out. I mean, I'm excited about it, but I'm also scared. And scared just of like, because you believe in it, but to see its reaction. Yeah, I mean, I believe it. I you know, of course, I believe in it because I I made it, but I also have sort of I have I have no idea how people are going to react. Yeah. Um, I just yeah, I really have. I really have no idea. And that, that alone is a scary, is, is a scary proposition. And also, you know, I've really made a huge effort with all this music to make, to make it, um, without thinking about the business side or commercial viability or what people would think at Mm -hmm. all. I mean that like, it's, it's as uncompromising towards what I think would work as any, as anything I've ever done. Well, then I'd say you're doing the right thing. Yeah, in I my guess. opinion, I, I guess I don't know. I've always I'm I, not worth that many streams, <laughs> so I don't. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I also know that I'm pretty lucky that I get to be in that situation where I can record a, a record like I did and have a record label interested in working with me on it and management that is supportive of me doing something like that. And I'm not saying I I don't think I'm recording like some super obtuse weird. Thing, but I do think it's a departure from what I've done in the past. And as I said, I, you know, I, I love all of it. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely a departure from the, from the last record. Yeah. 
but it should be. It should reflect your life. And like, I had a really weird year for like, I almost <laughs> died. And then I was like on, you know, a bunch of drugs to like help me with pain for a long time. And even just thinking about sort of what that meant for Goldrum, I knew I was going to have to tour less and I knew it was going to be a while until I put out new music. So a lot of the future of what Goldrum was going to be anyway was up in the air. Yeah. And that was scary to me. So I think like I can hear a lot of that uncertainty in a lot of the songwriting. I can't wait to hear it and then I guess play it potentially. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will be playing some of it soon in Mexico, in Guadalajara. Yeah. In May. This will come out before then. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I don't, I can't, I can't give away too much, but some of it, some of it's starting to come out in March. Sweet. And then potentially more Goldrum shows throughout the year. Yeah, there will be more Goldrum shows through the year, both DJ and live. Mm. Uh, you know, this summer I'll be doing a bunch of boat shows, which I do every summer. Um, and then in the fall, there will be the return of the live band playing shows in, in music venues around, (laughs) around North America. Shows in venues. Yep. There will be shows in music venues. Um, and for people who don't know about these boat shows, uh, Josh DJs, they like charter out a massive boat. People buy tickets, and it's like a party on a boat in like a bay, or you've done it in like every port in the West and East Coast. Yeah, what's cool is, I, so I don't really make good, good. I make dance music, but I don't really make dance music that's ideal for like two a.m. in a dark club. Mm-hmm. I make dance music that really works for like a barbecue when the sun's or out, a beach or something like that. So, and and. Um, the ocean and water have always been a huge influence in my music in general, which is why it's sort of ironic that my accident happened in the water. But, uh, so I started to do these boat shows. So yeah, like some, the the other cool thing is all clubs are the same at 2am. Like it doesn't really (laughs) matter. It's the same in Germany as it is in San Diego. Right. Uh, but I've done boat shows on Lake Travis in Austin that have water slides and are basically like lake boats that a hundred people are on. And then I've also done, you know, 1500 people in San Francisco on a giant old, uh, New Orleans, you know, Mississippi river paddle wheel casino boat, Yeah, you know, with a giant ballroom. So it kind of runs the gamut and every city's different. And that's, what's really exciting to me is getting the chance to play in all these different cool places. I've only been to one, and I think I got pretty drunk pretty quickly. But um <laughs> Was that in Chicago after Mambi on the Beach? No, no, no. It was uh it was in it was the LA one. Oh in Long Beach. Yeah. And I went with my with my friend Brian. Yeah. And you had like the tiny little VIP area or like where like your like little it was so funny. It's just like a piece of rope because it's a boat. There's not like a backstage. No, there's no backstage. That's kind of what I love about it, though, too, is you get to have a lot of close interaction with everybody you're, who you're, came out. You're at the party. You're yeah, part everybody's just party. partying together, and it happens to be that I'm going to DJ for an hour and a yeah, half. Yeah, it's so different than a normal show where it's like, okay, here he is. You're like, you're there the whole time hanging out. Exactly. So. And people are like, hey, Josh, like, what, what time are you playing, man? Yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah, I love it. It's my it's my favorite tour to do every year. It, it's I'm, a really uniquely curated thing. Like I don't know anyone else who does that. I don't think anybody does. People play boat shows, uh, but I don't think anybody does a whole tour the way I did. Yeah. But that took me a lot of time. I I had managers and agents for years telling me it was impossible. So eventually, I just you know, it can it can't be done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're basically like, it only works, you know, because if, the they, Ra- if they made a movie about your career, there'd be some executive being like, Goldman will never play on a boat. 
and then yeah the finale and yeah and even last year you know we got to the point where we couldn't find partners to do some of the boats with in certain cities and so um we just started doing it totally ourselves like go rent the boat on our own uh you know rent the production to get the equipment and then sell tickets like fuck yeah yeah and now you have it in place yeah exactly well, if uh, whoever's listening, if you want to go to Gold Room shows, you could potentially meet me and see me there too. Since fact, uh, Mike is awesome. You and heard he, it. You here do first. a little of everything in the in the band, also. Yeah, I do some, some percussion, some, some keys, some vocals, some bass, some synth bass, some some real bass. Maybe I'll get on a guitar someday on in the band. We'll see. Could be. But I think we're just nearing nearing perfect time here. Oh, amazing. Um. But uh, Josh was nice enough to host me at his house, and um, we're we're probably gonna keep hanging out for a little bit. But uh, this will be the end of the interview. It's gonna be an awkward end to this interview. Just gonna this wrap is, it up. This is awkward. I don't know. I don't. Usually, it's like a hey, and then we like split ways. But I'm you know I'm at your house and. Oh, true. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's not awkward. No, I don't. Maybe this, it is now. <laughs> this isn't awkward. We've spent so much time with each other over the years. But it's nice to be able to do this because we haven't seen each other in a few months. Exactly. Um, it's a nice Maybe we'll get to talk again. We we'll always, probably or, talk again. Well, because <laughs> now this interview has sort of become you asking me to run, run you through my musical background mm-hmm. when I feel like most of our good conversations end up um, like we didn't bring up hardcore history once in this podcast. No, see, that's the, di- that's the difficult thing about interviewing you is that I want to keep it in line with other interviews like talk like talk about your career and talk about the things that this podcast is about right on the other hand me and you could also talk for like six hours and we could talk about coffee (laughs) we could talk about records we could talk about like mortgages you know like we we could talk about podcast other podcasts so yeah absolutely that that, that would it could go off the rails i most like talking about coffee I, i wouldn't i like having you on tour if only because i can wake up and ask you where you are, and <laughs> yeah. you will lead me towards a good day. Yeah, that's that's actually what's... you're my touring you're my touring shaman. <laughs> I I well I care a lot about the my mornings on tour. So like finding the best coffee I can, even if it sounds pretentious, it's more about like how are you going to make the best out of your short but it's, time. It's also very it it's not just find the best coffee. If the best coffee is across town in an Uber, but the third best coffee is a mile walk down a cool street. Yeah, you got to negotiate. There's some negotiating going on. But in you're terms always of time gonna, you're and... always going to be active enough. You're always like you always find a way to see the city the right way. Yeah, you are. You're my touring shaman. If I <laughs> if I just like if it's like if I had a post it on up on like the bunk in the bus. Yeah. And I woke up and had to see it. It would just it should say like follow Mike. <laughs> and if I just follow that one rule, it leads the whole day down the right path. Because it's a bad idea also to like hang around the bus or the van or the venue or whatever. It's a bad idea to hang around too much or oh, yeah. you gotta get out of there. When you have too much time, it's like I don't know, but it's also it's it's a sometimes it can be a slight curse because I like like in AWOL, Isaac 
always is like, where are we, where are we getting breakfast? Okay. So I was going to say the other thing about our dynamic that works well is we're also both super independent and totally cool with being on our own and also totally cool with leaving each other and it not being weird. Yeah. So it's not like I'm waking up and being like, wait for me, wait for me. If you go to find the spot, you also have no problem telling me where it is. And if we meet up for 25 minutes while we're there and then you want to take off, there's no awkwardness or weirdness as a part of that. I just know that if you you're my yellow brick road, right? Like you just point me in the direction. And if I follow it, good things will happen. You'll find some And maybe stuff. we end up walking that road together. And if we do, it'll probably be a great day. But if we don't, that's no big deal either. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, uh, thank you. I like, uh, I mean, it's nice to know that, uh, my opinion is trusted. Hell yeah. And I'm love breakfast so much and coffee so much that it's like, no, I'm, I'm going to spend time. I'm going to figure this shit out. Like, I'll do it before we get there. Right. And then at a certain point, you have like, all right, these are my three favorite coffee spots in this town. So I'm going to go here. And it's so cozy when you get to revisit a favorite place or something that makes you feel a little bit like connected to the area. Big time. Not just a new place. Yeah. Like, I'll go to like a shittier coffee shop just because I've been there twice before now. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not a it's not a curse in the way where it's like annoying with um like with AWOL. It's just like it's this funny thing where Isaac will just be like, Hey, well where are we having lunch? Where are we having dinner? Find find the best dinner. He just like <laughs> will tell me that, that he's he's given the job to me. But then That's it, pressure. But the, it's but pressure, pressure you sort of want. It's pressure, but then I always get to decide. Yeah. So the Goldrum thing is always interesting because you, you're the breakfast guy, but then I feel like it always ends up getting really democratic for, for dinner. Yeah, dinner's a different, a whole different beast on tour because it's more of like a sit-down thing and you want to kind of – you plan it out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And then the stakes are always a lot higher, it feels like. <laughs> like and, and there's always more money involved and there's drinks involved. Oh, yeah. So, like, so now, yeah, it's, it's weird how there's so much more pressure on finding a good dinner. Yeah, I mean, and everyone's focused on. We've never developed the perfect rhythm in Goldrum for dinners, but I think that also just has to do with uh, playing. You're playing a show later, so half the people don't care about eating a big meal or not. The other half don't want to eat at all, or the other half of the people are like, "I got to eat a light dinner, and it's got to be, you know, two hours or more before we go on stage." Yeah, and there's just so many. There's a lot of specificity there. The type of tour you're on changes that entirely. If you're like in first of three, or if you're headlining, and like the tour I just did last fall, we we were direct support. Um, but you know when you're playing arenas, it's you play. We played at seven thirty. So dinner's always after. Uh yeah, because yeah. even though we That's played nice. at seven thirty, I was up till four or five a.m. every single night, not partying, just not able to sleep, because. I don't know. We we, I don't know. I don't know. My schedule got weird. You I you know you wake up at noon or one every day, and then you find breakfast and we didn't even sound check, and then you have like a bite, but then you have dinner like after the show and you shower and then then you're like evening begins. <laughs> so I can't even imagine. That's so weird. It was a weird because I've also lived the the a similar schedule but the actual opposite of that Mm -hmm. which is like the very weirdest kind of touring that i do is if i'm alone playing clubs late Mm -hmm. so like a tour will be like um show up somewhere late afternoon eat dinner immediately 
sometimes take a nap. Yeah, that's the crit. You've explained this to me. You wake, go to sleep before the show. Wake up at 11 or midnight. Or even if I don't do that, though, it's like play the show from 1 till 3. Sleep as hard as I can, as fast as I can. And then wake up mid-morning so that I can go to the airport and get on another flight. Mm-hmm. So, like, dinner usually happens. I don't know. that. That's just sort of the opposite. It's like staying up till 4, but I'm playing at 1 and you're playing at 7 at night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're both staying up just as late. Yeah. But that's got to be difficult in terms of – I mean, when I say it's got to be difficult, this is coming from the perspective of someone who drinks on tour. But if I had to play at 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. every night – I don't start drinking until after midnight. I know. That's so – that's such a crazy thing. Unless me. I'm in my hotel room or at a restaurant drinking a little bit of wine. Yeah. But That's you can't get key. drunk. I mean, maybe you can. <laughs> well, this know. is the difference. Imagine if uh, imagine if you were only playing synth bass mm-hmm. and you never, ever, ever had to use a second hand. Yeah, I mean, I could do that pretty drunk. Well, no, I guess what would that second hand do while you were playing? feeding my mouth drinks yeah like when i'm djing there's there's a lot of time for me like i drink i when we play live i don't i have to make an effort right it's like i've got that bottle of red wine and i'm feeding it to you and we're making an effort to like cheers and drink like for me it's very hard for me to drink at all during a show during a show but when i'm djing the time that i if i'm getting drunk when i'm djing it's i'm getting drunk while the show is happening yeah which happens. Yeah. Yeah, that – I was doing that a lot in the beginning of touring with AWOL. But, I mean, the last tour we did, playing at 7.30, it's, like, very easy to not be drunk for this show. Right. Um, well, you'd be surprised, though. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when we were in Columbus, Ohio, and we finished that bottle of Pinot, and then we cheersed our wine glasses together at the end of the show and shattered them over the audience? Yes, but it was was Madison, Wisconsin, though. Oh, yeah, you're right. Because Columbus, Ohio was when this guy was groping a girl in the crowd, and I actually jumped off the stage and grabbed (laughs) the security guard and dragged him to the guy and said, get this guy the fuck out of here. Oh, man. And then he he kicked him out. Um, There was like a 45-second break where I could throw the bass down and run and do this, and then I got back on stage. It was just, I I felt cool about it. I was so happy that you did that. I yeah. I wanted to kick that guy in the face. He just kept groping this woman. I remember being really drunk that night because it was my birthday. In Columbus? Yeah. Which makes me realize you were definitely right about the the Madison show. Yeah, it was like a small stage. And we had those big wine glasses or something. And there was glass. <laughs> it's wild to me that some people <laughs> let us have glasses on 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 stage. Yeah, that shouldn't be allowed. For that, for, we no. prove they These probably were like don't big anymore. Big stemmed wine glasses, <laughs> yeah. and we just <laughs> smashed them. <laughs> chugged half of chugged probably half a bottle of wine, and it was pretty unnecessary. Yeah. It was a college town. Yeah, touring touring with you is fun. The oh, the, the Golden tours are fun. Well, I hope we get to. I hope we this do would be one. fun. This uh, um, not to like, spoiler alert. No, I don't know. This wouldn't be in a bus. We'll be we'll, we'll be because the the runs on each coast are going to be shorter. Yeah. So it'll be fly and but or I guess you can cut this out. Love you, Mike. <laughs> uh, <laughs>